Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is home to a thriving culinary scene based on products and traditions from the native Taino, African, and Spanish peoples that have influenced it. When you go, there are a host of restaurants, bars, breweries, distilleries, farms, and coffee houses to dig into, from five-star experiences to local favorites. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. We all know, from home cooks to restaurant chefs to eating enthusiasts, that the quality of your ingredients makes all the difference, especially when it comes to meat. Westholm, which is based in Queensland and the Northern Territory, Australia, is working with the land to create nature-led Australian Wagyu. They steward 16 million acres of rangeland, guided by the natural ecosystem where their cattle thrive. The result is high-quality Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of Northern Australia and a flavor suited to complement any cuisine. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Hello and welcome to Saver, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And today we've got a classic episode for you about the gin and tonic. Which is one of my very faves, both drinks and episode, because it has one of my favorite cocktail facts about cocktails that I probably, of the facts, the many facts we've learned throughout this journey, uh-huh. it's one of the ones I use the most that probably annoys my friends because they've heard it before. <laughs> and every time I'm like, did you know malaria and the gin and tonic? Insert story there. Ah, uh, yeah. It's Well, it's a good story. Uh, yeah, this, this is a very early episode back from uh, 2017. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I usually don't drink gin and tonic. It's kind of like a treat for me. I, I try to avoid um, uh, sweetened sodas. In, in my cocktails, um, I'm more likely to order a gin and soda, probably mm-hmm. probably with some bitters in it. But, oh, man, it, it is. A gin and tonic is, is delicious. It's so refreshing. Um, and I, I, I know we've talked about it before, but I was – gin is one of my favorite alcohols now, but mm-hmm. it, it took me so long to come to it. So gin and tonic, I know it has – or at least my friends tell me it has a reputation as an old man's drink. <gasps> um, but I never had that association with it, and I didn't come along to it until fairly recently. And I just, I adore it. Um, and and I know we've also said before, but we, from this episode, we got to do two videos, not one, but two. Mm-hmm. We got to make gin with Old Fourth Distillery, our friends over at Old Fourth Distillery, and... We got to have a 9 a.m. gin and tonic <laughs> with eighteen twenty one bitters. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, both were incredibly delightful. Uh, those videos are still available, uh, I believe, on YouTube and um, other places as well. Uh, maybe. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, oh, it, it was it was really spectacular, Get both both processes. Um, n- yes. Not just the, the having cocktails at 9 a.m. part. <laughs> From yeah. the 1821- that wasn't our choice, bitters. by the way. No, no, uh, I, it was fine. It was fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Eighteen twenty one bitters is um, is shipping, by the way, and they do really spectacular. Um, I'm not sure. The last time I checked, their tonic syrup was sold out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, oh, they do a great, great, great line of bitters. Really beautiful stuff. Yeah, and the tonic syrup. 
is amazing. Oh, it's so good. Um, mm-hmm. And really, really just increases your um, your capacity to put that that quinine flavor into various other things. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, the the gin and tonic in general um, has been seeing uh, a bit of popularity right now, especially in canned form, uh, like even outside of the United Kingdom. What? <laughs> I know. Uh, canned cocktails in general are rising in popularity, especially in the U.S. and Japan. I'm sure you've seen all of those seltzers, um, mm-hmm. which I am still a little bit perturbed by, um, but that's that's okay. Uh, apparently, after an episode of Fleabag aired that featured uh, leading characters drinking canned gin and tonics, specifically from Marks and Spencer, uh, Marks and Spencer gin and tonic sales uh, spiked 24%. That's excellent. I love that. <laughs> I must have this experience oh, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> right? Oh, it's beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also seeing a lot of buzz about pink gin and tonic out of the UK. Um, pink gin being um, gin with Angostura bitters added. That's interesting because there's also <laughs> at the uh, many food festivals we used to attend when that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I miss one them. of. Always, always, I think it was Beef Eater would be there, and they would have, like, a pink, just everything pink booth. And I guess it was for their pink gin, but I always assumed it was sort of a gimmick. (laughs) I mean, I guess it sort of is, but... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it turns a lovely color of pink, and and pink has been a very popular color these past few years. So, yeah, I don't know. They also hand out, uh, I have several of... pink fanny packs from this because they give them out at these events. So I am the most stylish. I'm so ready to spend summer being so stylish in my apartment. <laughs> Everyone's going to miss out on my pink panty packs. <laughs> uh, I, I demand Instagram photos. <laughs> oh, it's going to be, I'm going to be so happening. I want, no I want one around to see. Annie's style corner. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, and, and also, uh, I guess, I guess after eight, you know, that, um, that Nestle brand that makes the little, the little after dinner chocolate right, mint yeah. things. Yeah. Um, they yeah. released a gin and tonic and mint flavor, I think in Germany, but the packaging is in English. I'm very confused. Um, interesting. Yeah. I think I saw that too. And it seemed like it was well reviewed. Um, I'm struggling to imagine mint going particularly well in that combination of flavors, but uh, yeah. but you know, I'm happy if people are happy. Yeah. <laughs> we always want that. Yeah. Um, when I did my cursory gin and tonic search, I think the two things that stood out to me was uh, one: this Australia distillery accidentally filled bottles of what was labeled as gin with hand sanitizer. Uh, oh, oh no. But luckily, it was all fine. Uh, no one was seriously injured, but one, I think one <laughs> gin drinker left a review that said it was horrible. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> yes, but it was all corrected. It was fine. And then not gin and tonic related at all, but made me giggle. Uh, a result came up that said Delta is introducing beer and wine flights, which I'm very curious about, but also interesting timing. But hey, (laughs) want your beer flight (laughs) on a flight? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did see that. Yeah. They're, they're opening, um, they're opening back up because for, for a while they weren't doing any booze service or drink service, Mm -hmm. I think, other than maybe bottled water on flights. And so Mm -hmm. I know that they're Opening back up, um, not cocktails, but beer and wine on flights now. Uh, but, God, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> hmm Oh, flying places. Oh, I'm, I, miss, I miss a lot of stuff right now, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yes. <sighs> yep. But I have the stuff for gin and tonic oh. in my refrigerator. Oh. And I'm looking forward to that later today. <laughs> oh, I do not. Oh, I've been meaning to get some gin. Uh, it's time. I've been on. I've been on a pretty serious whiskey kick um, mm. through these also past good. few months. Oh, sure, sure, sure. No complaints. Um, 
one of the th- I, I do keep running out of uh, fizzy water because I also am not going to the store very often, and so I just my roommate and I just run right through it. So it's yeah, yeah. You got to plan these things out. I, we were talking about this before the the show. My mm-hmm. very intense scheduler now is not all my social <laughs> events, although that's on there too. It's right. what am I eating for the next three weeks? <laughs> oh my gosh. <sighs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yes, so we have this episode about gin and tonic for you, and we're going to let former Annie and Lauren take it away. Hello, and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And uh, this is the second edition of our cocktail hour. Yes. Still no cocktails, though. Oh, no, we don't. Oh, we, we both have water, don't we? We do. But we did just come straight from a distillery in Atlanta. That makes gin. Yeah, and we sampled some of the gin there. We did. Way before lunch. That's true. But it was for work, it, so... For strictly research-related purposes. It was. Uh, and it's Old Fourth Distillery in Atlanta, and it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was really really cool uh, getting to watch the the process of how gin gets made, and uh, we'll have a video on that out around the time that this podcast comes out. Yes, and this is probably the time when we should mention the cocktail we are discussing oh. is gin and tonic. Yes, which you might know from the from the title of the episode too. Oh yeah, I hope so. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's always good to get that out there in the beginning. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, gin and tonic. Yes, that's what we're talking about today. Right, or the G&T, as it's also called, sometimes also called gin tonic without the and. And right now it's having a <laughs> bit of a resurgence, a little bit of a moment in the past couple of years, particularly in Spain, where it's sort of a national drink and borderline obsession. Really? Yeah, they, um, they have like a variation on it that has more ice okay. and a garnish, and it's served in a balloon glass Ooh. that purportedly enhances your ability to smell the drink. I have had one of these, um, and it was lovely. And it came with one of those big ice cubes, like circular oh, ice cubes. Yeah, those always make me really happy. Yeah, yeah. But then again, as we found out, as we find out every time we go on a shoot together, I'm very easily entertained. Yes, both of us are. We're we are. like, there's bubbles, ah, bubbles. And the people working are like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're, enthousi- we're enthusiastic. Yes, it's, it's a positive. Yes, I think so. At any rate, the gin and tonic, um, right. which I very much enjoy, even just the regular way. Me too. Um, of course, uh, has long been a go-to in Britain where you can even buy it in pre-mixed cans, mm-hmm. which I find slightly horrifying, to be super honest. Yeah, <laughs> I saw one of those and I thought it was like, it kind of looks similar to a fresca, if anyone's familiar with that. Oh. So, uh I went to kind of examine it more closely. Oh, this is a gin and tonic. Okay. <laughs> Winston Churchill once said that, quote, the gin and tonic has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in the empire. Ooh, wow. And the New York Times called 2013 the year of the gin and tonic. But the gin and tonic has not always been this trendy summer drink. Yeah. Uh... More on that in a moment, but first, what's gin and tonic, Annie? (laughs) Well, Lauren, I'll tell you. It is a highball cocktail, which is basically just an alcohol-based spirit mixed with a larger percentage of a mixer. Mm -hmm. And the alcohol base in this case is, you guessed it, gin. Gin! And what could the mixer be? It's tonic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The order of operations here typically is the gin, the tonic, Lime juice, if you want it, that's optional. And ice. I've seen it done other ways, but that's mostly what I came across when I was researching this. Yeah, yeah. And then a lime wedge or, or twist to garnish. Right. And typically the ratio of gin to tonic is somewhere between one to one or one to three. And yeah, the lime wedge, pretty important. But that's it. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's there's variations. Yeah, obviously. Um, uh, popular ones put in... Angostura. Angostura. Angostura bitters. I think. Okay. We think mint and all kinds of tonic water things. There's Yeah, like, w- whatever tonic you choose to put uh, in there. Yes, there's so many options there. There's artisanal tonic water. 
My boyfriend and pretty much everyone I talk to about it in London swears by Fever Tree. Excellent brand. Yep. Um, you can make your own tonic syrup. Or you can do both and mix them together. Yeah. There's a lot of options there. Um, and since there are only two ingredients and there's usually more tonic water than gin, you want to make sure that you like the tonic water you're using if you want to enjoy your beverage. Yes. And, and it helps if you like the gin that you're using as well. Yeah. This is a drink that I think you really don't want to get the cheap stuff. Um, and a personal note for me, I did not know I liked gin and tonics. Until fairly recently because I was just drinking. Oh, just drinking terrible gin? Terrible gin and probably terrible tonic oh. juice. <laughs> I was one of those people that was like, it tastes like a pine tree. <laughs> did um, you just call it tonic juice? <laughs> did I? Yeah. That was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Patented. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite everyday affordable gin of choice is Beef Eater 24, by the way. Ah. And I did a tour of their... Uh, I almost said brewery. That's not correct. Distillery in London when I was there, and it was really, really cool. It was really neat. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I all the distilleries now. Just from now on, that's all I want to do. Go visit distilleries. We'll um, work on that. <laughs> I, I find, I, I wanted to put in that I find New Amsterdam perfectly acceptable. But, of course, nice gins are nice. Um, uh, number three, London Dry. Might be my personal favorite sometimes, occasionally. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I like, I like alcohol. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, work with what you got. But I do think that this is one of the, the drinks that, if you can, mm-hmm. get something a little better. It's a nice. Like, like, the one I said is only only 20 bucks. So that's not terrible. Yeah, not, yeah. not at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but back to tonic water. Right. Bars in the U.S. have been criticized for using a soda gun for the tonic water part. Um, and that stuff, according to some chefs or uh, mixologists, it doesn't have quinine in it. It may or may not. It may or may not, which is a bitter ingredient that we're going to talk about a lot more, and it's very important. It, it's the, this whole thing. It, it's, it's what makes tonic water taste like tonic water. Right. Um, and that's why mixologists suggest you request your tonic water out of a bottle. But that sounds to me like I should have just saved some bucks and ordered something else or made my own at home. Yeah. Eh. Up to you. Up to you. And, uh, yeah, the key to this drink is balancing this bitter flavor of the tonic water with the kind of flowery, botanical, herbal, herby kind of <laughs> kind of flavors of the gin. Right. And the key botanical, the key ingredient is juniper. In the gin, yes. Yes. It's the most prominent note. It has to be the most prominent note. You have to have juniper. This is very serious and not just to Annie. No, but Annie legally. Is, but Annie is, oh, legally. Okay. Oh, that is serious. <laughs> Goodness. The collagen, yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but of course, there's uh, lots of other ingredients that gin makers use to flavor their products, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Lemon peels, coriander seed, almonds, orris root, licorice root, and angelica seed. And there are so, 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 so many. My, the one that I like, they use tea, I believe. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And the gin and tonic has been cited as an example of a food pairing type drink, meaning that the two ingredients taste differently apart than they do together. And this is because chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. The molecules that give gin and tonic their flavor are very similarly structured. So they attract and create aggregates that change the taste. Yeah. More than the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did all of this get started? Great question. Yes. As you might have gathered from that Churchill quote, we largely have the British to thank for the gin and tonic. And according to Slate, there was a period of time when the G&T was, quote, as essential a weapon for the British Empire as the Gatling gun, which is a big claim. Big claim. Yeah. Uh, And it turns out that it's kind of true. Yeah, kind of. But let's find out. Yes. As with most things, the origin story of gin is a little difficult. Um, History! To to pin down. But a 16th century Dutch physician, Sylvius de Bove, he developed a highly alcoholic medicinal concoction called Geneva. Um, He used the essential oils of juniper berries, which he believed was a curative and a circulation improver. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. A A lot of alcohol started out as a curative. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yes, this thing is healthy. 
we should definitely absolutely drink more of it. <laughs> right. And the juniper berry, which comes from a coniferous plant, has a history of being thought of as this medicinal thing, going all the way back to Italian monks using distilled spirits flavored with juniper berries as a not actually working remedy for the plague. Oh. Yeah. Well, I guess at a certain point you're going to try anything that you've got. That's true. Yeah. I, I probably didn't make things worse. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it did. <laughs> Who knows? No, I, th- I think I think at the point of the plague, you you're not you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it might have made you feel better, I guess. If you, yeah, one can hope. <laughs> um, the story goes that the English first encountered gin either during the Dutch War of Independence during the 1580s or the Thirty Year War that took place from 1618 to 1648, and they gave it the nickname Dutch Courage or gin a shortened version of Geneva. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, And once William of Orange became king of England after the glorious revolution of 1688, gin's popularity increased dramatically due to high tariffs placed on the previously more popular hard liquor of the day, French brandy, which motivated the English to find ways to make gin cheap. And they did. They really did. It was so very cheap and and was used, uh, again, in, in a medicinal kind of fashion. It, it, it was used to ease hunger pains, uh, warm you against the cold, distract you from brutal, thankless factory work, you know, and, and give you a buzz. Right. You know, get that positive <laughs> fun thing out of it, too. Um, <laughs> also, if distillers couldn't find or didn't want to buy juniper berries, they'd use turpentine or other harmful, you should not be drinking this type things. Yeah. Gin rooms typically came with this signage over their door, quote, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two pennies, clean straw for nothing. But the straw was usually soaked in vomit. Yay! (laughs) Drink responsibly, kids. Yes. We probably should have said that at the top of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're getting it now. Yes. (laughs) You made it this far. Yes. Um, uh, English gin consumption would skyrocket in the 18th century, leading to an uptick of public drunkenness, followed by the gin craze. Dun, dun, dun. It was a freakout among those more well-off, the morality of drinking gin by the less fortunate. And this was my favorite part of the beefy tour, by the way. Yeah. It was like a haunted house. It was like you were suddenly in a haunted house because <laughs> they had it like old London streets and it was dark and there are people screaming and crying. What? It was crazy. This sounds... I, I hadn't thought about it this way before, but this totally sounds like like Reefer Madness kind, oh, of, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really cool. But, 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 I mean, kind of at the time, there were some terrible things happening because of the, uh, the, the, the cheapness and the availability of gin. In 1723 London, the death rate surpassed the birth rate and 75% of babies died by the age of five. Uh, mothers with newborns would give babies gin to calm them down. Um, the moms themselves were sometimes addicted to gin and didn't provide their children with much attention. They're giving that attention to the gin. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or babies were born with fetal alcohol syndrome. And because women were more often impacted than men, gin earned nicknames like, quote, ladies' delight and mother's ruin. And Ugh. that one is still around to this day. Ah. And some popular gin bars are called that. Oh. And this is very important. The gin we're talking about in old London, that, that's not today's gin. No. 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 We have improved uh, distillation technologies, yeah. uh, safety regulations, which are pretty okay sometimes. Yes. And according to a Vice article I read... Quote, the gin of the 18th century was a throat-searing, eye-reddening, vomit-churning hell broth. Hell broth. Yeah. Oh, Vice has a way of putting things. I have to say a hell broth. <laughs> I'm, I might be hesitant to imbibe a hell broth. But I don't know. I kind of want to try it. It would depend. If it was a Halloween-type situation, <laughs> I'd give it a go. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in for a sip anyway. I drank, Lauren's in for a sip. I drank mold this week. That's true. We've had adventures. We have. Watch the videos. Mm-hmm. Well, despite the fact that I would try hell broth, and certainly a lot of the English were apparently more than trying hell broth, uh, 
not everyone was on board for all of this all of this crazy gin behavior. And the government had a few things to say about it. And we'll get to those after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm-hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip yeah. together. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we're, we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is, yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. <laughs> West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia, and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So in response to this gin panic, Mm -hmm. the English Parliament drafted a series of laws, um, eight gin acts, to be exact. And these were aimed at minimizing uh, gin drinking during the 1730s in in what historians compare to our modern-day war on drugs. The first gin act, uh, a steep tax on gin, had this glaring loophole, though, in that gin was defined as something that had quote, juniper berries or other fruit spices or ingredients. Yeah. So people just didn't add those things and therefore made what they, what, what they called a parliamentary brandy. Mm-hmm. 
And it kind of, there was another gin act, and they also, people found a way around that one. And then in 1734, Judith DeFore killed her baby and sold the baby's clothes to buy gin, which resulted in the third gin act, prohibiting sale of gin over two gallons and enacting a stiff tariff of one pound per gallon on top of the 50-pound annual license fee required to sell it. And this did a good job of putting legitimate sellers out of business and replacing them with corner sellers who peddled dangerous cheap stuff that blinded and or killed people. Because we all know it's always really good when you uh, when a government tries to crack down on found a something way to that people that. really like. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, it and the Fourth Gen Act also rewarded and protected informants, people who would tell the police, give the police information about who was selling gin, who was drinking gin. But informants had to know the name of the renter of a property selling gin for the authorities to act on their tip. So Captain Dudley Bradstreet... Captain Dudley Bradstreet. He sounds like a, an upstanding gentleman. Yeah, not really. Probably not. <laughs> uh, he circumvented this in 1738 by having a friend rent a house in London where he nailed the sign of a cat in the window and hid a pipe underneath the cat's paw. Captain Bradstreet got some food, 13 pounds worth of gin, and barricaded himself inside. <laughs> After he had spread the word that the next day... Jen would be available from a cat in the alley. Ah. <laughs> I'd be intrigued. Uh, customers placed coins in a slot over the cat's mouth, and the captain slowly poured Jen from the pipe underneath the cat's paw. And he did this for three months before copycats <laughs> caused him to move on. Um, but despite what you might think and what I thought, this probably isn't where old Tom Jen comes from. But it did lead to the creation of Puss and Muse houses, where, like M-E-W-S, like yes. Muse. Yeah, not like Muse, an idea. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where a customer wanting to buy gin from a vendor in some secluded space mm-hmm. would say, puss, and the vendor would say, Muse, <laughs> and uh, reveal a drawer that the customer would put their money in, which the vendor took and then pushed it back out. But now, magically, it had gin. Ah. Mm-hmm. That was... Magic. Gin yeah. magic. <laughs> a great kind of magic. Uh... But 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 the but the people would were not having this. No, they wanted their gin. They did, and by 1743, people were rioting in protest to these tariffs. And despite the tariffs, Londoners were consuming 11 million gallons of gin annually by 1750. Gin informers were killed in the streets, sometimes by mobs. Who? Mm-hmm. 1700 social historian Thomas Felding wrote in a political pamphlet about the destruction gin was wreaking on what he called the, quote, inferior people. Uh Um, And he wrote, quote, a new kind of drunkenness unknown to our ancestors is lately sprung up among us, which, if not put to a stop, will infallibly destroy a great part of the inferior people. The drunkenness I here intend is, by this poison called gin, the principal sustenance, parentheses, if it may be so called, of more than a hundred thousand people in this metropolis. Goodness. Yeah. So yes, the government kept trying the Gin Act of 1751 up to the costs of operation for gin stores, um, either due to that or more likely uh, the rising grain costs that translated to higher gin costs for customers that encouraged them to switch to the cheaper beer. Consumption of gin did lessen, but it was still Miss or Mr. Popularity, as spirits go in Britain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want to mention here that there's a terrifying picture about the immoral stuff caused by gin called Gin Lane by William Hogarth. And I stared at it, discovering one horrifying thing after another for a long time on my tour of Bee Theater. Go, go look it up if you're looking for something disturbing. <laughs> it, it's oddly mesmerizing and terrifying. Will, William Hogarth, Gin Lane. Mm-hmm. Go check it out. Mm-hmm. And the negative connotation gin earned during this gin craze is still around to this day. And in phrases like gin joint, gin drunk, gin soaked, bathtub gin, and gin mills. And I've never heard the term gin drunk, by the way. But apparently this is becoming mean or emotional when you're drunk. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. that's that's gin. Yeah. Now, we should talk for a moment about tonic. We should. 
the other key ingredient. Yes. So the tonic that we know today, a sugar-sweetened carbonated soda that's flavored with the bitter, tangy quinine, is also a thing that originated as a medicine, and specifically as a treatment for malaria. Now, uh, quinine is a compound that occurs in nature, specifically in the bark of a large shrub and or small tree called the cinchona, which is native to the Andes Mountains in South America. Unlike the cinchona, malaria is not native to South America. The Spanish brought it with them during their invasion and colonization, starting with Christopher Columbus in the late 1400s. He's going to show up in every episode. One day. One day, Christopher. (laughs) And malaria was a really huge problem throughout Europe at that time, um, where it was generally called the ague. Up through the mid-1600s, no one knew what to do about it. Uh, Folks would come down with this mysterious flu-like fever that would come and go and would frequently cause complications, leading to death. And a lot of people were doing this. Although it, it didn't help that the medicine in Europe was still focused on the humors. Um, and popular wisdom was that you should uh, bleed or, or purge a patient with ague. Uh, other potential cures were uh, astrology. Of course. And reportedly, this one's my favorite, throwing a patient headfirst into a shrub <laughs> and encouraging him to disentangle himself faster than the disease could disentangle itself. How would the disease disentangle itself? Well, because it's a, it's a, it's like a little spirit that's hanging out with you, and so oh. if you can get up faster than the disease, then you leave the disease in the shrub. I see. Totally logical. Completely. <laughs> I don't know why I haven't tried this. I need to get someone to throw me head first. <laughs> Next time I've got any kind of like cold that won't go I'll away. I'll tell Kyle. <laughs> No worries. But in the 1630s, though, an Augustinian monk by the name of Antonio de Calancha, I think, uh, wrote home about the powdered bark of this Peruvian tree uh, that was working wonders for the treatment of ague. Historians think that probably native peoples developed this cure in the couple hundred years that had been dealing with malaria and passed it on to the Europeans. But since Augustinian monk was getting excited about it, uh, Pope Innocent X had some of his people look into it, and over the next hundred years or so, it had become a major European import and a widespread treatment and uh, preventative for malaria, because quinine kills the parasite that causes malaria, it turns out. Bully. (laughs) It, It took a while for the British to catch on, though, because its associations with the Catholic Church freaked out a whole lot of Protestants. Oliver Cromwell supposedly refused treatment with it, leading to his death in the 1650s. Although he also had typhoid fever, so it probably didn't help the situation. None of those things. No. But catch on they did. And the Spanish basically had a monopoly on the Peruvian crops, so they made a mint. Legend has it that it was sometimes referred to as bark from the fever tree. Oh, I see. Uh I see where they get their name from. Yeah. Meanwhile, throughout the 1700s, Europe would go a little bit nuts about sparkling mineral waters, uh, first taken from natural springs and then artificially produced through various carbonation processes. It was a health trend and also, you know, fizzies are fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But these healthy sparkling beverages were sometimes called tonics. And Johann Jacob Schwepp, (gasps) yes. What? That Schwepp. My God. Uh, founded the first carbonated water manufacturing company in Geneva in 1783. Hmm. Sparkling water aside, in 1820, after decades of scientists searching for the compound in Cincona that makes it such an effective medicine, these two French pharmacists by the names of, do it for me, Annie. Pierre-Joseph Pelletier and Joseph Bianami Cavento, I think. Oh, that's, oh, see, yeah, that's a lot better than I would have done. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, the, the two of them isolated uh, quinine and set up a factory for its extraction in Paris. And this made it possible to eat slightly less tree bark while attempting to not get malaria, which I'm sure a lot of people were very fond of. I'm sure. Um, meanwhile, as this was happening, the Spanish colonies in South America were fighting for their independence. And afterward, they would um, attempt to control the lucrative cinchona industry by limiting or flat-out outlawing the exportation of seeds and cuttings Mm. of cinchona plants. But despite the price, all of the conquering empires, including the British, were on board with cinchona and quinine and used it to start eradicating malaria in Europe throughout the 1800s. 
However, malaria was still a huge problem in the tropics, uh, which is largely where the conquering empires were getting their conquer on because of sugar and other stuff. Sugar. Sugar. And this all came to a head in British-run India during the early 1800s. People were taking daily doses of quinine to prevent malaria because it's so bitter, folks were starting to mix it with sparkling water and a little bit of sugar, and thus, tonic water was born. Which brings us to the gin and tonic. But first, first, it brings us to a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a saver team trip together. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go. And I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia, and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, now that we've got a gin, we've got our tonic, where did the idea of mixing them come from? Well, it was kind of a Mary Poppins situation. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Uh, Around 1825, British soldiers in India started adding gin to their daily required quinine tonic water. 
And also, as an added bonus, the British Navy squeezed in some lime juice to prevent scurvy. And this is where the nickname for the British Limey comes from. Oh, I know. I should have guessed that a long time ago. I feel very silly now. Okay, that's fine. Uh, By the 1840s, the British population in India was using, in fact, more than 700 tons of cinchona bark per year to to fight malaria there. Wow. And in 1858, the British took over governance of India from the British East India Company following the violent Sepoy Revolution, also called the Indian Mutiny. A bunch of other names, too, but those are yes. th- 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 those cover the bases. Mm-hmm. Um, with more British soldiers and their families in India than ever, the demand for tonic water increased, which led to Erasmus Bond's creation of the first commercial tonic water in that same year, which you can still buy. I've never heard of it. Me neither. And that led to Schweppes, uh, the Indian quinine tonic in 1870. And both of these went on to find success outside of India and Britain as well. Meanwhile, uh, Charles Ledger, an Englishman who became an alpaca farmer in Peru, smuggled cinchona seeds out of Peru to his brother during the 1860s uh, because at the time it was uh, still illegal to export the trees or the seeds. Right. He actually had a history of smuggling. He also smuggled alpaca out of the country. He was just a smuggler. Apparently. Better (laughs) at it than Han Solo. He didn't get caught. That's right. Ooh, Han oh. Solo burning the gin and tonic episode. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the British government would not buy uh, these these seeds that he that he smuggled out, but the Dutch government would and did, and they set up plantations on Java, which was uh, one of their colonial outposts. Mm-hmm. And so, by World War One, the Dutch pretty much dominated the quinine trade, and by the end of the century, they controlled ninety five percent of the world's supply. That's Quite, quite a large percentage. This epitaph reads, by the way, Charles Ledger, he gave quinine to the world. Hmm. Ah, yeah. And the G&T was also thought to have played a role in World War II when the Japanese forces took over Java and all those Sincona plantations, which equaled most of the world's supply in 1942. Oh, According to Amy Stewart's book, The Drunk Botanist, which I absolutely want to read, uh, the last American plane out of Indonesia had 4 million quinine seeds on board, but to no immediate avail because the trees would take too long to grow to be of any use during the war. But that didn't stop the Allies from planting trees in Africa, while at the same time putting scientists to work developing a synthetic replacement. Ah. And both succeeded. To this day, Africa grows natural quinine, and and the synthetic version is used in some prescriptions. Yeah, because it's still used as an anti-malarial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for some other things, but that's a different episode entirely. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the history of the gin and tonic. We obviously, as always, had to shorten it, uh, especially we didn't talk about how you distill gin, but we're going to do that. You true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should, we should definitely do a whole episode about um, more more gin things. There's really quite a lot. It's it's such a base alcohol that uh, there's quite a lot to say about it. And we also just today, as we as we said, uh, got to go see it being distilled. So mm-hmm. this is new knowledge that's percolating in our brains. It's true. Mm-hmm. We do have a few closing remarks. Yes. Uh-huh. Including, I, you can make your own gin at home using vodka, um, juniper berries, you have to, and other botanicals. Um and I know a lot of people say that gin is basically flavored vodka. And it, I mean, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a neutral spirit to which juniper berries have been added to. That is the definition of gin. Yeah. So I have to say I was surprised when I was like, how do you make gin? And there were so many recipes that were just like cheap vodka and juniper <laughs> berries. And I was kind of like, at that point, maybe buy just buy, maybe some, just buy gin. some gin. But I, I'm all down for trying things. Yeah, and could, it could be great. Yeah, I don't know. if you want to experiment with uh, with your own flavors, then absolutely, then do it. Yeah, I mean, I I want to go put tea in some gin right now. It was good. Yeah, uh, tonic water glows under black light. Because, I did not know that because of the quinine in it. Yeah, so that's a really fun Halloween trick. Um, <laughs> if you if if you want to make a, a cheap Halloween decorations, just uh, toss some quinine in some in some vases and let them go. I thought you were going to say, like, throw it on the walls. Oh, That's that w- some cleanup. That uh, wouldn't be very effective. <laughs> no. That would dry pretty fast. Okay. And 
Finally, here's a quote from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, this is so delightful. Yay. Yes, I'm going to try to get through these pronunciations, but we'll see. (laughs) It is as follows. 85% of all known worlds in the galaxy, be they primitive or highly advanced, have invented a drink called gin and tonics, or gin and tonics, or gin and tonics. (laughs) Or any one of a thousand or more variations on the same phonetic theme. Oh, Douglas Adams. Yes. (sighs) And that brings us to the end of this classic episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. If it is something that you like, we hope a gin and tonic is in your future. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we, as always... Would love to hear from you. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. Or also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks as always to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop. During the Right Rug Flooring Hello Summer Sale, you'll find savings throughout the store, all backed by the right price guarantee, including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty, only $159 installed with pad. That's right, $159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right here, right now. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.